Bourbon is just one of the things we are known for here in Kentucky. Its history is as rich as its taste, and the stories behind the bottles are a huge part of the experience. We know the distilleries of today, but what about those distilleries of days gone by and the stories that may have went with it? One man is using his love of history and archaeology to find those forgotten landmarks and help us get a better taste of the state's signature drink through the stories and people who were distilling spirits long ago. From WKYT Podcast, this is Uniquely Kentucky. I'm your host, Amber Philpotts. Welcome into Uniquely Kentucky. September is Archaeology Month here in the Bluegrass, and my guest today is a man who has been digging up the past and the stories behind some of Kentucky's forgotten distilleries and has come to be known as a bourbon archaeologist. Welcome, Nick Larquente. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I love that term, and I know this is something you're so passionate about because when I met you several years ago at what is called Bourbon Pompeii, you were so giddy about your job. I loved it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Bourbon Pompeii was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I was not expecting that at all. Let's talk about that. There's a lot I want to talk to you about, but that one is sort of what kind of puts you on the map, if you will, uh-huh. I guess. It's over at Buffalo Trace. Right. Mm-hmm. We all know Buffalo Trace for its great bourbon. Mm-hmm. But when they were going about wanting to put in some new space, some event space, they got to digging around, and lo and behold, there was something really unique that everyone had kind of forgotten about. So take me through what was uncovered. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, they were working on making a wedding event space, and they're just like, um, hey, Nick, we found something old. Can you come and look at it? And they gave me um, gave me a weekend. Like, if you've ever been in the room, I went in there, and where the catwalks are, we're all ripped up, and there's backhoes sitting around and stuff. And you could see, like, old foundations and whatnot down in there. But um, we didn't really know what we were looking at at the time, right? So they're like, well, uh, take a weekend, uh, figure out what we're looking at. We've got a construction schedule we want to stick to. And um, they gave me the best weekend of my life, down in a pit, getting dirty. There's like snakes and bugs and stuff. But I was uh, looking at the layers of soil, trying to see what was there, if I could tell what, what it was. And at the end of the weekend, I come to them and I'm nerding out about the dirt. And I'm like, you can see the flood deposits here. And this is a part of a distillery here. And over in this area, you can see the, um, the wall of one of the fermenting vats. And that's what changed the project. It turned a weekend into over a year. And um, they've actually taken that information that we learned, the artifacts, the words of Colonel E.H. Taylor himself, and they um, reactivated one of those fermenting vats. And this year, they've been um, uh, running just fermenting runs in that uh, in that vat, and they're actually distilling. I think it'll be about eight years before we get to taste the product. But um, every single day, I think it's uh, 2.30 is when they do the tours through there. You can go take the E.H. Taylor tour and see Bourbon Pompeii in person. It's just um, it's awe-inspiring. I don't know how many times now, and I still get little tingles in my arms. If I understand it correctly, so E.H. Taylor had come in, um, built uh, a distillery, and that one caught fire because it was hit by lightning, right? He actually um, found a distillery when he came in there. It was a Swigert uh, Taylor distillery, I believe. And it wasn't big enough to meet his specs, so he ripped that one down, rebuilt, and lasted about 10 years. And that one got struck by lightning, and he rebuilt again into the OFC distillery. And then that got um, buried in concrete. At one point, around 1950s or so, Shinley Distillers was in there, and they just weren't making enough 
of money. They decided to cut their losses, deactivate everything, and pour a concrete floor. And um, from that point on, people just gradually forgot it was there until 2016 when we came across it. You say that you still get goosebumps with that. What what does that feel like when you're down there and you're realizing, oh, whoa, this is big. This is something. What's that moment like for you? Yeah, it's um, it's overwhelming. I mean, uh, because some of it is uh, potential. Like to this day, every time I do an event on Bourbon Pompeii, we learn something new, right? So that potential is always there. And that's the thing that's uh, overwhelming about that, because sometimes the stories are really cool. And sometimes the stories are just out of reach. You have an idea that something really interesting happened there, but you might not have a name or you might not have, I don't know, um, all the components to recompose a whiskey or something like that, you know? So um, that weekend that I was there, I was like, well, you know, this is really exciting, but let's temper this because it might not be enough to kind of change the direction of the project. And um, I mean, sometimes that's uh, what we find in other excavations is uh, we find some traces of the past, but it's not until you compare them with known sites where you have like a better articulated history, like uh, preserved diaries or something like that, that you can really uh, piece together what happened in another site. If folks have not gone, this is my one plug to go and see it because it is really incredible. It's really cool how they set it up and you can kind of walk across and see it. And you do. You just feel like for a moment you have stepped back in history. And you say eight years may be the product. I mean, that sounds like a long time away, but that's really not. That will be so amazing. Yeah, it's going to be incredible whenever we start seeing that in bottles. Nick, I know that you love what you do. And I joked when you walked in the door here today, what have you been digging up recently? Where did you find this love for history and especially archaeology? Because I know a lot of little kids will say, I want to be an archaeologist when I grow up. But that isn't really true reality a lot of times. How did that happen for you? Um, For me, it kind of happened because I was an army brat. We moved around a lot. Um, Arizona, we saw like cliff uh, cliff dwellings and whatnot all around there. And I lived in Germany around the time the wall came down. And there's castles and World War II fortifications and all this stuff just like literally in our backyards, right? So I've always grown up with this interest of history. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized you could have a job that actually paid to explore history. Now, sometimes it doesn't pay well or you're like living in hotels or whatever, you know, so I made some trade-offs and I I, um, have a day job where I do archaeology with the state. It's mostly paperwork, Um, but that enables me to go out on like nights and weekends and actually get my hands dirty doing projects that um, wouldn't really be tended to otherwise, right? Um, So, and then the thing that really keeps me in it is just this uh, continual awe. Like I Last week, I went and I spoke to nearly 300 middle schoolers at Elkhorn Middle in uh, Franklin County, right? And I was telling them about Bourbon Pompeii and uh, artifacts around Kentucky and how Kentucky's more than just a dark and bloody hunting ground. There's uh, Native American villages and complex societies here. And uh, the stories just, they never end. Like, every time I go to work, I learn something new, which is awesome, right? But for them, it was also captivating because it turned... um, their backyards into something that was really interesting. It introduced some maybe mystery, some things that had yet to be discovered, right? And uh, that very next day, I ran into some of the middle schoolers, and uh, they introduced me to their parents, and they were like, hey, this is the guy we were telling you about, you know? And then I had to explain why the seventh graders wanted to go to Buffalo Trace, but, you know... (laughs) You never know what you inspire, so if it gets them to 
Buffalo Trace, you've inspired them to maybe move on, not tasting anyway. Right. <laughs> um, you have carved out a niche for yourself. I mean, I think, you know, um, archaeology, a lot of times when, when people think about it, they just think, well, you know, I found a piece of a dinosaur. I found some, you know, old pottery pieces or things like that. And this bourbon archaeology has really uh, grown, obviously, because in Kentucky we love bourbon, right? Right, right. Um, how do you find the places that you go and, and try to dig around and uncover and learn about? Um, now they're almost coming to me because <laughs> initially when I started doing all of this, I was working with the, uh, the Jack Jewett historic site It's in Woodford County. And they tell the story of the revolutionary war hero that came and settled in Woodford County and did all these amazing things. And they had a few documents that talked about him as a distiller. Right. And, um, at that time, 1794, when distilling's happening, he's not really making a product and aging it in barrels or whatever. He has a still, he's turning corn into whiskey and he's using it as currency. So the documents were 10 years of lawsuit documents. He traded his distillery for 1400 gallons of whiskey to a different family. They never paid up. And there's lots of name calling back and forth, but there's lots of details in there as well, right? Enough to lead us to that distillery. So when we figured out that we had the distillery site and we wanted to investigate it, um, the Jewett house is like, well, why don't we just put out a call on a paper and uh, we can do a volunteer project. And um, if people show up, that's great. And if not, then we tried. So uh, the invitation was something like, if you want to, if you're interested in archaeology whiskey or Jack Jewett, come and join us and learn more about this distillery, right? So um, 130 people responded to that. And we spent uh, about two years. This was uh, probably 2013 to 15 or so um, doing this volunteer project. And it went well. We learned all about the site. Um, we know exactly where his distillery was. We actually didn't have enough information to maybe reconstitute a whiskey that was a lot like Jack's. Um, it might not taste very good. It was in stoneware jugs and not really aged, but you know, we could do it if we wanted to. And, um, it was so unique. We were actually recognized by, uh, Washington DC as a, a preserve America steward. It's, uh, a group of volunteers is kind of filling a niche that is not, um, tended to elsewhere in the professional preservation realm. And we got this, uh, plaque from Michelle Obama and all this stuff. So it was really neat. And after that, um, distilleries just kind of started falling in my lap. People call. They're like, we have a still out in our backyard. We want to know more about it. So now the problem is more of trying to figure out a systematic way to look at these because there's a lot of work involved. I'm still writing up the stuff from Jewett's excavation and, um, you know, trying to kind of tie up those loose ends and then choose the next thing that's going to be the best use of everybody's time is the hard part that I'm having right now. As you've gone through this, Nick, have you learned anything about the distilling process or the way whiskey bourbon was made that's kind of been, oh, that's a revelation or that's something new that we had forgotten about? Has any of that come about? Yeah, a few things. It's always interesting when I'm talking with um, distillers about this because it's like this is what this old, old site looks like. And they're like, oh, well, we deal with that problem this way. So uh, one example is these really old farm distilleries. Most of them in Woodford County are right on the sides of really steep hills, and they end up actually using that elevation to help um, move the grain from one place to another. So the earliest stage in the process starts really high up, and then the next stage is like slide down the hill a little bit from that, and then eventually
eventually you get to the bottom and you can just load your wagon and take it out to the Kentucky River a mile away or so. And when you get into things like um, grain elevators and stuff like that that you see at a modern distillery now, um, that need to build it on the side of a hill kind of disappears. You still need water, but that um, necessity to minimize the amount of labor you're using kind of disappears. So it's interesting seeing some um, different innovations like that. And then there's also who's actually doing the distilling, right? Like um, one of the very first distilleries I looked at was all the archaeology that was done for Mount Vernon's distillery. So George Washington's distillery. And um, he used slaves there in making the actual whiskey and such. And then we found um, evidence that Jack uh, Jewett had also used slaves in his distilling. So there's a whole unwritten piece of history there. It's not that um, it doesn't exist and it isn't accessible. It's just that it was so hard to get to that nobody's really done it yet. And so we're starting to kind of scratch the surface on that. We still don't know the exact name of the distiller, and we may never find out what his distiller's name was of Jewett's distiller. But we can take that information and we can use it to support people like the uncle nearest Tennessee whiskey, right? Where you have a slave nearest green who actually taught Jack Daniels how to do his distilling. And they have there all these documents, the things that we don't have at these early, early Kentucky distilleries, but we can compare those experiences and kind of flesh out stories. So uh, that part's just fascinating. And I don't really know if there's a, another way of getting at it, you know? Um, one of the exciting things that just happened in the last uh, month or so is I met um, Dr. Erin Gilliam over at KSU, and she's looking at the photographic, the archival evidence of the African-American experience in the distilling industry. And she's just really started her research, but already she's um, opening up some stories that haven't really got that light of day to them yet, you know? So there's juicy, juicy stuff there, and it's just fascinating learning more about that. What a, Yeah, what a fascinating portion of history that... Um I would think that we should know is right there, but it's probably one of those things we've just never stopped to think about. That will be really amazing to see what comes out of all of that work back oh, for and sure. forth. Um, what's your coolest find outside of Bourbon Pompeii? Yeah, good and qualifier. I'm talking about yeah, and I'm talking about maybe pieces or artifacts, that kind of thing. Right. Well, it's interesting because um, the distilling process, especially with really early distillery, um, people are. Either very poor or they're very meticulous with their work environment. So with the Jewett distillery, we didn't find a lot of artifacts within the distilling complex itself. And we think us because they're keeping the floors swept. You don't want to be doing distilling and like walking on old garbage, right? So we only really found like one or two pieces of stoneware jugs. But one of them that we found, it looks like it was probably made somewhere locally, maybe Lexington, maybe for sale, something like that. But you can actually see the thumbprints from the person that was making this jug in it. And when you get a artifact like that and you can actually like physically put your fingers where somebody has before you know that sort of thing i've got you can see my hair standing in my arms right now so it's a it's it's incredible but it also helps with that connection because the volunteers that we're working with whenever they get to share that experience um i mean that's one of the main things that keeps people in archaeology i think you know and even if the volunteers don't become archaeologists there's different ways that they could use archaeology if they got into, I don't know, tourism or working in main streets or whatever, you know. So just the knowledge of this is here, an archaeologist 
once you get them fired up about something, they will share what they know with you, you know? So um, it's just interesting kind of making those bridges. Also, it's such a sense of pride for people to come out and be involved in something like that, where maybe we might find something, maybe we don't. But if we do, as you said, being able to think that I'm kind of walking the footsteps of someone else or I'm touching something that someone so long ago, that sense of pride is real. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then there's other connections, too. Like uh, I always carry with me a... this is a, a jaw harp that my uh, my grandfather gave me, and we actually found um, one of these at the Jewett site. It looked a little different, and it was missing the uh, the twanger thing in the middle, right? But uh, when I found it, I was like, I know that I've seen one of these before. Where was it? And Grandpa was the one that was telling me, he was like, this is what it is and how it worked and whatnot. And so uh, for me, that was like a personal connection through the artifacts, but it also... Um, helps you excavate like what the place looked like, right? Or what it sounded like in this case, because especially with early distilling, um, there's a lot of waiting around for the temperatures to get right and whatnot. And so um, while you're waiting, what are you doing? In this case, somebody was playing music on that site and um, or cooking food because we found some remnants of uh, like pig bone that had been boiled and charred and left in a uh, left in a campfire and stuff like that so you can get um, kind of pictures of there is probably the smell of cooking meat the sound of a jaw heart playing maybe the sound of like grain on metal as they're like crunching it up in the grist mill and um, when I first got into archaeology I didn't really think that you would be able to piece together those kind of intangible things you know So um, this is very cool. We know, obviously, how popular bourbon is. Uh, We know the tourism factor that it has. But now, sort of archaeology and the things that are being uncovered, it's adding a whole new layer to that. That's got to be pretty cool to sit back and and watch as well for these distilleries now to be able to add this extra layer of history into their site and what they're offering to folks that come to see them. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, that's one of the things that really – got me interested in distilling in the the first place, right? Because usually a bourbon consumer, they're after um, authentic histories. So like you mentioned earlier, you're looking at stories in a bottle, right? You're not just uh, downing some uh, a tasteless vodka or something like that, right? You're interested in why the label looks like it is, or maybe there's a, a specific story behind the shape of the bottle or the people on the bottle. And that desire for something authentic is um, what makes a lot of people that maybe you're interested in bourbon, they're also accidental preservationists. So we're, we're allies, even though we might not realize it at first. And that sort of thing is, um, is pretty amazing. What would that moment be like if you uncovered a bottle of bourbon? <laughs> Depending on what it was, I don't know if it would be safe to drink or right, not. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. <laughs> because of that, uh, all that rectified stuff. That would be my luck. I would find a uh, one that had like uh, uh, sulfuric acid in it or tobacco juice in order to get that color right. But um, I think it'd be pretty incredible. I mean, I know I was reading some um, early excavations by Ivor Noel Hume in uh, the Virginias, and he actually went down in a well and he found um, like a cherry uh, brand bottles that were still sealed. And I don't know if they ever drank them or not. But I mean, just going through that process. I mean, for me, I think the more realistic thing might be finding like a like a yeast jug or something like that and having that authentic strain of yeast and having the mash bill and being able to reconstitute what that that looked like, you know, and just that hands on experiment working with some of the distillers that are interested in this thing. I mean, uh, that right there is kind of my dream. And um, 
we're even lo- uh, looking at working on some of these um, moonshine sites out east would probably be the next place that I'm working. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of um, rock shelters in Daniel Boone National Forest that have moonshine in them. And there's one that um, the forest rangers took me to a few months ago that it looked like um, somebody had just kind of dropped their stuff after law enforcement came and there's kind of broken mason jars but other than that everything is left as is you know so it's uh amazing being able to see like all right this is what this place looked like if the moonshine was good it would be interesting to try to um reconstruct it but um i don't know about finding one that was whole Nick, I, I don't need you to drink that. I need you to be around a lot longer okay. so we can <laughs> uncover more stuff, right? Talk to me about the world of technology, because I imagine that that has probably maybe made your life easier. I don't know. But, you know, with, with 3D imaging and, and printing and things like that, I don't, I don't know if those are things that fit into your world, but it seems like technology may make it easier. Or do you still do the old simple get down and dig around. It's uh, one more tool in the toolbox, right? Because um, there's not really an archaeology tool store, unfortunately. Most of the time we're borrowing tools from other people. So the main one's like a brick mason trowel that we sharpen up and things like that. But my very first experience with uh, bourbon archaeology was out actually out here at um, the James Pepper um, area where Barrow Haas distilling and all that is, right? Uh, the parking lot that's paved right now, whenever I first saw that place, it was all gravel. And um, they let me run a ground penetrating radar over it. And um, through that radar and through overlaying a bunch of maps through uh, GIS on the computer, I could actually see the signature where um, there was a brick warehouse foundation underneath that parking lot. And there's uh, by lining up the maps, I forget the exact age of it, but we could actually figure out what age that particular warehouse was. So it helps on things like that because, I mean, I guess you could still get there through like transparencies and graph paper and drawing a lot, right? But I mean, with a few clicks on the computer, you can get a lot of that work done. Um, and then there's some other things that are incredible. Like uh, when we went to Bourbon Pompeii, there was somebody that came in. I've never actually met him in person, but he came in on the weekend and he um, put down a machine that took uh, thousands and thousands of high-res photos and stitched them together into a like a dollhouse. And you can actually get online on this website and see and like spin around Bourbon Pompeii when it's in construction. And that was incredible to me because it's, uh, it's not digging, but it's... Um, preserving the site in a way that I've never ever seen before. And you can actually get some Google glasses and put it on and like look around like you're actually there in the dig, you know? So that really helps whenever I'm talking with like school classes on Skype or something, we could pull that up and they could see what I was seeing when I was in there doing the digs. So uh, it's incredible. This month is archaeology month. And, and I love that we put that out there for the whole state. And we really do invite people, as you said, to really get involved. Um, there's a, something coming up in the Red River Gorge where folks yeah. can get involved, right? Yeah, it's the 31st year of the Living Archaeology Weekend. And uh, that is a place where, um, oh gosh, there's so much there. So um, there'll be thousands of school kids that come in on Friday. And then on Saturday, um, anybody that wants to go. And it's it's almost a... It's almost a religious experience because you go through the Nada Tunnel and you get around the Glady and there's all these um, reenactors and demonstrators there. And what they're doing is they're showing how 
we have the same problems, us and historic people and people lived in the prehistoric era. Um, we all had uh, the need for clothing, the need to get food, the need to hunt, whatever. And we just used different technologies in order to get those, um, uh, complete those goals, right? And so if you go, you can actually get your hands dirty. You can scrape um, animal hides. You can uh, try out some food that's cooked on an open fire. Um, you can throw an atlatl, so a long dart that people use to hunt game. Um, thousands of years ago. And then you can also learn about um, plant domestication because in Red River Gorge um, a few thousand years ago is one of the first places that uh, things like corn and squash and kenopodium were, were domesticated. And we found all that through archaeology in those areas, right? And so the same time that people are doing um, like rice or potatoes or stuff like that in other areas of the globe, that was happening in Red River Gorge. And so you can go and Sometimes archaeology is not obvious, but the thing that makes Living Archaeology Weekend cool is every single thing that you see in the demonstrations there is tied to something that we've learned through archaeology. And it's just uh, awe-inspiring uh, watching like um, the Living Archaeology Steering Committee and Daniel Boone, uh, National Forest, kind of uh, spend a year putting this together to make it as perfect as possible. And after 31 years, it's, um, it's jaw-dropping. So definitely go out. The event's free, um, and you can get some Miguel's Pizza or whatever on your way out there, and that's always a fun experience, too. Did I read that only 10% of Kentucky has been surveyed? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, maybe a, maybe just slightly more than that. But right. I mean, uh, really, archaeology in Kentucky started in um, 1930s officially, maybe before that, if you count people like uh, uh, Raffinesque, who did some of the early maps of Kentucky. But I mean, William Webb, who documented a lot of the Indian earthen mounds around Kentucky, was really... Um, uh, groundbreaker, literally, um, at finding some of the things. But right now, we have uh, documented something like thirty-three to 34,000 archaeological sites around Kentucky, and it's everything from Paleo-Indian sites, which is featured on that the poster of Kentucky Archaeology Month this year, up to the distillery sites of 50 years ago. So literally thousands of years of Kentucky history is just buried underneath the ground, and we unpack it almost like um, turning new pages on a book, right? And then to go with that, I mean, we also have been documenting all the old structures that are around. Um, this building even looked like it had a little bit of age on it, right? And um, we've documented about 130,000 of them. And usually when you have an old uh, building, there's some sort of archaeological site with it. So there's definitely not a shortage of things to do around Kentucky as an archaeologist. Nick, do you think there's something out there or is there... Let me phrase it this way to you. Is there something that you haven't been able to find that you want to find that you've, you know, kind of honed in on, but you haven't gotten there yet? Or is there just something that you think, what do you think is just out there waiting to be found? Oh, my goodness. Hmm. At the moment, I can't think of something offhand, but it's more of because there, there's almost too much. Like, so one of the reasons that I decided to completely uh, put on that kind of, um, I don't know, the bourbon archaeology uniform, right, is because I feel like with distilleries, I can address pretty much any question that I'm uh, interested in over time because it's a microcosm of uh, Kentucky society at any one point in time. But 
really, if anybody went out there, um, say there's an archaeologist that's uh, looking to do a dissertation project or something, and they want to look at hemp, I could guarantee you that there are sites out there that would speak to the archaeology of hemp, which would be a pretty good idea to start getting on top of right now, right? So, um, but I mean, literally, even with um, all the sites that we've documented in that 10% we've looked at so far, you can look at almost any aspect of Kentucky society, Kentucky history, and it's just a matter of starting with that kind of framework that our predecessors have put together for us and building on top of that by choosing the right site or talking to the right person or maybe taking technology that didn't exist 30 years ago and looking at some old artifacts in a new way. Um, so that sort of thing is incredible to me. And uh, I guess the biggest problem is finding more time because there's almost more questions than there are time to look at them, right? Yeah, and you have to write about everything that you find. So right. that's a lot of time. I read this and I thought it was very special uh, because I know how passionate you are about your, your job. But it sounds like you have someone following in your footsteps. Your daughter is quoted in an article saying that you said she said, I like the things, but it's more cool learning the stories about the people who use those things. That's pretty remarkable for a little girl to say. And now I have goosebumps, right? you know, <laughs> that's got to mean a lot to you. I'm, I'm very proud of her. And uh, I think part of it is because I've been dragging her to every single um, presentation and dig that I've done. There was one time that she actually um, took over the podium, had me step to the side and started talking about the artifacts that she found during a dig with me. Um, and uh, we had to have a talk with um, one of her teachers about the fact that she knows a little too much about bourbon, but it was because of what I do. <laughs> but it's encouraging them because it's like one of the reasons that you really get into this is that um, when you have development, uh, uh, like new shopping centers, stuff like that going in, right? Um, we're literally bulldozing away parts of our history. And so a lot of archaeology, a lot of the stuff that I see in my day job, it involves like new construction and whatnot. We are um, literally saving some of the last vestiges of these stories. And um, if we don't do it and get it documented, that stuff could be gone forever. And um, then people like my daughter or maybe even her kids kids um, may never get those stories. And that's one of the things that kind of drives me and others in this profession is making sure that we don't lose those really important things that is like, this is why it's important to be a Kentuckian, you know? Very well said. Nick, if people want to find more about your work or if you're, you know, speaking places, where do people find you? How do people keep up in touch with you? Um, I'm on um, Facebook at a, a page called Bourbon Archaeology and on Instagram at the same Bourbon Archaeology. And um, I kind of pop up all over the place lately. <laughs> so I'm doing a talk at uh, the Paul Sawyer Library tonight and then one at the Scott County um, Library tomorrow night. And then on October uh, 4th or 5th, I'll be in Newport talking at the uh, Kentucky's Edge Bourbon Conference. And uh, I'm sure there will be um, something on the Bourbon Archaeology Facebook page that talks about when that's happening. Um, but other than that, I mean, um, just reach out on Facebook if you've got questions or a family distillery you need looked at. Um, I generally get back to you as soon as I can, and uh, it's always fun. Well, one of the questions that I always ask every guest on here, we call this podcast Uniquely Kentucky. What do you think makes us so unique, Nick? Oh, wow. I think the thing that makes us unique is just that my interests have really aligned with the, the bourbon communities and um, 
that kind of support and uh, cooperation is something that I've not really encountered before because I could be feeling overwhelmed about like, I don't know uh, the answer to this particular question that I'm dealing with. And the next thing I know, I'm talking with um, somebody from Wilderness Trace, uh, Wilderness Trail Distillery just last week, you know, talking about yeast strains and how we might dig them up. And they gave me all of the uh, scientific information about yeast that I didn't really know. And that, uh, that sort of thing, that kind of uh, collaboration as Kentuckians, as people that are interested in bourbon, um, that's something that's uh, unique to me. So I, I think that it is an awesome environment to work in, and that's why I'm, uh, my career is here. Nick, I don't know how you keep all that information in that brain of yours. <laughs> One day I think your head's going to explode, but I appreciate you, and thank you so much for what you're doing for uh, keeping history alive and for inspiring others. It's uh, it's a really good thing to see. <laughs> you're welcome, and thanks for inviting me to talk today. All right, keep on digging, okay? Okay. Okay.